hope you guys got your Bibles with you. Open up to Job 22. And uh, tonight we're going to do 22 through 24. And as we do, one of the cool things that we're going to see is uh, God's going to um, uh, empower Job, grace Job, to be able to proclaim uh, Satan's loss tonight. Uh, he's still got a few more chapters and people are going to uh, bust on Job some more. And we're going to see them uh, continue to uh, berate him. He's going to respond uh, a couple more times. But uh, tonight, he gives notice to the devil. It's kind of cool. I like it. I like uh, how he does it, how he puts it together. So we find ourselves in, uh, in Job 22. And we are in the beginning of the third discourse. So there's three discourses against Job by his friends. Four if you include Elihu, but Job doesn't answer Elihu. So Elihu just goes on like a four or five chapter rant. Um, But Job answers the other three friends that are around him. So Elihaz comes up. It's the last time Elihaz is going to bring a charge against Job. And as he does it, you can see in the beginning of the third discourse, he, he's gotten more and more frustrated with the inability of his friend, Job, to understand what he's trying to say. And the bottom line of it all, Job 1 and 2, God told us that Job did not sin, that he was not a... And that doesn't mean, by the way, when, the, when he says over and over again, Job says, you know, he's holding to, to the fact that he is... Uh, he has not offended God. He doesn't mean I'm not a sinner in the general sense that we're all sinners. He's just saying, I haven't done anything that I haven't repented of. I haven't done anything that I haven't sacrificed. I haven't done anything that God and I hadn't talked about. I don't know where all this is coming from. And that's what Job 1 and 2 says. Job 1 and 2 tells us that it was Satan coming to God saying, you know, if you take away all the good stuff you've given Job, he'll curse you to your face. And God knew Job wouldn't do it. God knew the character that Job had. God said, no, he won't do it. Go ahead. First, Satan took all of his things, right? All, uh, all of his, uh, all his money, all his herds and cattle and all the stuff that he had. And then Satan took all his kids. And then the next day, Satan said, when Job didn't curse God and die, but rather Job declared, um, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed to be the name of the Lord. So actually, the Bible tells us after all that, after he lost all that, after all that went down, what he did do was worship God. He worshiped Him. So then Satan says, oh, skin for skin, if you touch his body, then he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord turned loose Satan. He held the leash, but he turned Satan loose. What happened? When he turned Satan loose, Satan went to Job and touch his skin. Now, God told Satan you can't kill him. But Job don't know that. So if you're Job, you are pretty sure you're just slowly rotting to death in the pile of ash where you find yourself. Keep in mind, Job's friends couldn't even look at him. He's so torn up. His skin is so messed up. His body is so racked with pain and disease. They, they won't even look at him. Job says a number of times, look at me. But they, they won't look at him. And all the while, Job holds to his integrity. And when we talk about that idea, when we talk about the idea that Job is holding on to his integrity, listen, here's what Job's looking for. He's looking for confirmation from God in contradiction to what his friends have been saying. That his right relationship with God, which he has had throughout his life, had always been grounded on the fear of the Lord and not in the merit of his good deeds. And his friends come and say, no, it's not because of that. It's you have either done or not done something that you should have done. And that's why God's bringing this in. So Elihaz is mad. His third time trying to get Job to understand something is not true. Because when we get to chapter 42, God's going to say to Elihaz, you had it wrong, Job had it right. You're, you're, you're misunderstanding what was going on here. So Elihaz is there. He's getting frustrated. He's getting upset. And he's going to begin to talk about the wickedness of Job. He's going to begin to talk about the sinfulness of Job. 
And he starts with this concept in chapter 22. That God really has no stake in your affairs. Good or bad. In essence, to me, in the beginning of chapter 22, Elias is saying, God doesn't really care about you, Job. He don't care how good you are, how bad you are. God is beyond. He's not really that wrapped up in, in what's going on in your life. He says, and Elias has the tem- uh, the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Though he who is wise may be profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your way blameless? He's saying, look, uh, God doesn't really have any pleasure in the righteous or in your righteousness. He's not profitable. God's not made more profitable by his relationship with you. Press fairly harsh ways to begin. Uh, make it simple. God don't love you. If God loved you, you wouldn't be going through all this stuff. You have offended Him. God don't love you. You're not profitable to God. You're not pleasing to God. But all the while, Job would say, no, I have a relationship with God. And, and God and me are tight. And I don't know why He's not talking to me right now. Now we have the benefit of chapter 1 and 2 that says God chose Job as his champion to fight against Satan in a spiritual battle. And so Job is in a spiritual battle against Satan right now. He's about to knock him out. And as Job is is doing battle, his friends are coming along and trying to understand what's happening to Job in theological terms. And sometimes it's just not that simple. Their assumption, bad things mean you've done something wrong. Good things mean you did something right. So Elias begins in verse 4. Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you? So you see that he's mocking him. Job all the while said, I have lived my life in the fear of the Lord. The concept throughout the scripture that tells us the beginning of wisdom, right? Is the fear of the Lord. To reverence Him, to honor God. Same phrase. To, to make your life's devotion to, to please Him in the things that you're doing. And so He says, oh, so, so you're trying to tell me that this is because of the fear you're living in the fear of God. And the answer to that question in the beginning of verse 4 is, yes. That's what it's about. It's about Job's ability To live in the fear of God and Satan calling him out and saying, no, he can't do it if you take his stuff away. And God allowing Job to fight for him. So Elias stumbles on the reality, but he don't mean it that way. He's mocking him. He's saying, oh, come on. You mean, you want us to think that it's because of your fear of him that he corrects you? And enters into judgment with you. What he's saying is, no, it's not the fear of him. You've done something wrong and you need to come, you need to come clean with it. Look at verse five. Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? So the charge is not, this is not a charge of you're just like the rest of us sinful people. That's not the charge. The charge is you are wicked in the extreme because I look around at normal people and they're not going through what you're going through. So is not your wickedness great, massive, this humongous thing, and your iniquity without end? So the denial of Elias is that Job has a relationship with God at all. Because if he had a relationship with God, it wouldn't be like this. You wouldn't be struggling. You wouldn't have this, this hardship in your life. And then he begins to name a bunch of bogus claims against Job that were untrue. Look at the list. He says, you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. Now, that's kind of a stupid sentence. If they're naked, they don't have any clothes to strip. But I get what he's saying, right? You get what he's saying? He's saying, you're taking from people who don't have anything. You're stealing people who don't even have anything. You're stealing their stuff. He says, you have not given the weary water to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. Uh, but the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. So he says, you're so full of pride. You have all this pride in your wealth. Now, while he's making all these charges, and I, I want to I challenge us when we find ourselves with the shoe on the other foot. 
Everything that he's saying, he's guilty of not doing for Job. Job's stuck in the pile. He is not eating. But nobody's trying to give him food. He's certainly poor at this point, right? He lost everything. You don't have nothing. But they're not there trying to give him something. The problem is, the Bible tells us, Jesus said, that before you go to take a speck out of your brother's eye, what are you supposed to do? Yeah, take the log out of your eye. Take the moat. So, for what purpose? So you can see clearly, so that you can remove the speck from your brother's eye. So if you're going to offer correction, like Job's friends are trying to offer to Job, before you bother doing that, the charges you're making, you need to look at yourself. You need to take out those logs, the jealousy that they had maybe over Job's riches, or the frustration over the fact that he was the most exalted man in all the East. Remember all those things it said in the beginning in Job chapter 1? The, all the honor and glory that Job had had because he was so blessed of God. So maybe all of those things were contributing factors to the attitude behind a lot of the things that they were trying to do. So Elijah has, he makes bogus charges. He says, you don't have any concern for the hungry. You're greedy. You're taking money from people you shouldn't be taking money f- from. You're all puffed up. Oh, the mighty man. How mighty are you now? So you're all puffed up in, in your pride over your, over your wealth. Look at verse 9. You have sent widows away empty. And the strength of the fatherless was crushed. That doesn't bode well for what God said in chapter 1. Job is the most righteous man in the land. There is no one like him. That's what God said. Eliah has, he's, he's trumping up charges because Job keeps saying to him, well, tell me what I did. Tell me what I've done wrong. So he starts throwing out all of these things. And then he, lo- he, he says, because of all these things that you've been doing, therefore, snares are all around you. This is why you are being trapped, Job. This is why you're in the pit. This is why you have sores. This is why your children died. This is why all your stuff has been taken away. Because of all these things that you've done. He says, this is why sudden fear troubles you. You're afraid. And Job's going to talk about that in the next chapter. Why why and of what he is afraid. And then verse 11. Or darkness so that you cannot see. And an abundance of water covers you. Not only does he say, you're surrounded by these traps because of this. And fear troubles you because of this. But then he says, it's getting worse. I always love that kind of encouragement. It's always darkest right before it goes totally black. And if you see a light at the end of the tunnel, it's a train. You guys got friends like that? So, this is his attitude. I like how he makes the reference to the water is covering you. Because the psalmist is the same thing. Somewhere around Psalm 69, I think, he talks about... The fact that the floods are are coming over him. Now, a great way to describe it, I don't know if you've ever had opportunity to swim in the ocean, but if you if you got a chance and you've been out in the ocean, the waves, when the waves come in, sometimes a wave will wash over you and wad you up. And you're tumbling around in the water. And then just about the time you get back to where you can get your feet on the sand and come up, and you think you're going to get a breath, that's when the next wave hits you. And it wads you up again. And then you, about the time you climb up out of that, the next wave's coming. Most often, waves at the beach come in what they call sets. So you could have as many as six waves in a row in a set. And if the first one wadded you up, there's five more coming. And every time you try to take a breath, it's going to hit you. And for me, that's a description that... That they're talking about the water, the psalmist talking about the water, the floods of water washing over me, and thinking, this is the one that's going to take me. This is the one that's going to wipe me out. So, so Elijah has a saying, this is, it's not as bad as it's going to be. Now, Job's looking around. Just put yourself in Job's shoes. Got nothing. Everything's gone. I'm all, I feel like I'm going to die any minute. I haven't eaten in, since this whole thing began. 
Uh, I never can't imagine feeling worse than I feel right now. My skin is blackened because of the because of the sores on my body, and I'm scraping them off with a potsherd, broken pottery, sitting in a pile of ash. And your friends are telling you, worse is coming. Now, if you're lost and you don't have a relationship with God, that's true. Because hell's a whole lot worse than that, right? But Job isn't lost. He has a relationship with God. But his friends, what I see in the things that they're saying is a denial of that relationship. Because Job, if you had a relationship with God, this would be better. Things would be better. Now, truly, sometimes isn't our relationship with God in life good? Sure. Is life always bad? No. But it's impossible for us to look at hard life and then make the equation that says if your life's hard god hates you and he's getting you for something you've done wrong sometimes that's true but not always so that means we can't make that accusation and that assumption we don't want to make those assumptions before we do that before we become like Elijah has let's take the log out of our own eye he says So, Job, can you hide your sin from God? Look at verse 12. Is not God in the height of heaven and see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Elias says, you you act like God can't see your sin, man. God can see it. You can't hide it. You're not telling us what it is, but we know there has to be one. He says, thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see and he walks above the circle of heaven. Are you sure, Job, that God is not able to understand and see what is going on? And then he looks to Job in verse 15 and says, so will you keep the old way which wicked men have trod? So don't be confused what he's saying. Are you going to do the old way, walking in rebellion against God? He's going to make two illusions to two groups of people. In uh, early on in the book of Genesis, that were judged by God. Look at them. Who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood. So who's the first group he's talking about? The time, of, yeah, the time of Noah, right? When the flood came. So he's saying, are you going to be like those wicked guys? That God washed away with the flood? And then look at the second. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? So this is these are the things he's charging Job with. Now this is not what we see. This is Job is the guy who said, I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he's going to stand on the earth. He's going to save me. I put my trust in God. I don't know why this is happening, but I trust in God. That's what Job's saying. It doesn't sound like the charge that Elias has. And they say, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? So then he says in verse 18, Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So he says, God was good to them. We're talking about all those guys in the time of the flood. They hated God and they rebelled against God and they didn't want to have nothing to do with God, but God was good to them. I'm not, I'm not ever going to understand the wicked, Elias has. But then he's, his second, his second uh, um, example. The righteous see it and are glad. And the innocent they laugh at them. So again, the distinction between the wicked and the innocent. The innocent or the righteous being those who really have a relationship with God that God takes care of. And those who don't really have a relationship with God that God does bad things to. So this is what he is saying. And then it says, surely our adversaries are cut down and the fire consumes their remnant. So what's the next group of folks that were judged by fire? You had the judgment by the flood. And then you have Sodom and Gomorrah judged by fire. The word here is brimstone. Same thing. Uh, Hellfire. It alludes to the same ideal. What's the idea? Look, God's judgment is going to come. Upon you, just like it hit the wicked at the flood, and the sinners or the folks living in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he makes an example. You're like them. 
And then he goes into this, I don't know a better way to say it. So Elias goes into this really beautiful section of scripture about repentance. That's the tricky thing about these guys. Look, Elias and Bildad and Zophar aren't like some evil people, you know, that really are Satan's minions. I think they're sincere. They're just sincerely wrong in their idea of what what's up with Job. But listen to what he says. Now acquaint yourself with him, with God, and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Now again, the, the illusion is not always wrong, right? Sometimes when you get your life right with God, your life gets better. Right? But in the case of Job, the case of Job is given to us so that we realize it's not a guarantee. God doesn't promise us health, wealth, and, 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 and uh, prosperity here. Always. So he's saying, but his, his idea is, look, if you really know God, if you submit yourself to God, if you live your life before God, then he's going to do good things to you, Job. It won't be like this. To me, you know, a, a lot of the friends that are gathered around Job uh, um, would be on TV today. Telling us about how, you know, if you just do this, God's going to give you what you need. If you, if you just have the right attitude or do the right things. But, but the story of Job tells us that's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. So listen to what he says. He first in 21, he's saying, submit. Now acquaint yourself with him. That word acquaint, uh, means to place yourself under. Same like the, the word submit would be for us. Uh, verse 22, he says, receive, please, instruction from his mouth. That's like, accept the things that God's telling you. Now, the problem with Elias is, I think he's making um, uh, illusion to him. So he's saying, accept, please, the instruction from God that he's given me to give to you. So I'm not sure how good that is. But the idea of receive instruction from the Lord, don't we need that? All of us need to receive instruction from the Lord. All of us need to submit ourselves before Him. He says, lay up His words in your heart. Isn't that what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119? How can a young man cleanse his ways? By paying heed to your word, O Lord. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So the idea that the scripture lays out for us, laying up His words in our heart, and then the, in verse 23, he says to return. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Now the problem is, I don't remove iniquity far from my tents. The Bible is very clear in the book of Isaiah. The best I can do is filthy rags. I can't make myself righteous. I can't make myself holy. The Bible tells us that the reason that the law was given was to show man that he needed a Savior. He needed God to make him righteous. That's what the book of Romans has been all about, right? Receiving our righteousness through a relationship with God. How is Job receiving his righteousness? Through a relationship with God. The problem is his friends think it's all going to be about some action that he can do to receive righteousness from God. But God declared that he gives it. That he freely bestows that righteousness. And so, this idea of submitting and accepting and returning to the Lord, you know, it's good. It's good. It's got, it's got mixed in this, this healthy, good concept, and then around it, it's also got this not so healthy idea. Not so true. Not the way sometimes the devil works on us. He don't ever come out with a, a bald-faced lie. Everybody'd say, "Oh, that's not right." So how's he come out? He comes out with something that sounds a little better, a little sweeter. I, I love what he's saying here. I love the concept of receiving God's instruction and submitting to the Lord and being at peace and returning to the Almighty and allowing Him to build me up. And then, in verse twenty-four, he says, uh, "Then you will lay your gold in the dust." And the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Some people think in this verse, 
I don't agree with them. Some people think in this verse that Elias is saying, now when you come to God and you get right with God, he's going to give you all this gold. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Elias is saying and what I really love about what he's saying right here, he says, when you get right with God, you're not going to care about your gold. Gold's going to be like dust. And that really nice gold from Ophir, you're just going to lay it in with the rocks in the brook. It's not going to matter to you. The reason I say that is because of the next verse. Because the next verse he says, Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. He says in verse 26, Then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Uh, To be honest, 25 and 26, how I want to live my life every day. I want to live my life every day as though the Lord God Almighty is my greatest desire. My chief treasure. The thing that I value above all other things. The greatest thing that I could ever lay hands upon is Him. My relationship with God. And the reality is, as Eliphaz is talking, what should be going on in his mind is, yeah, that kind of reminds me of Job. Because really, that's where Job is. He's lost it all, but he worshipped God. He fell on his face in worship. His wife came to him after he was diseased and said, Curse God and die. And he said, Shall we not receive evil or hardship from the hand of God? We receive good from the hand of God. Man, his attitude all the way through has been to trust in God and to hope in God and to look for God's deliverance. Assuming he's going to die here, but that he'll, when he stands before God, he'll be delivered because he has a relationship with him. And that's Job. His treasure's not in the treasure he had. I'm sure he, he's been weeping every day over his ten children. But he still finds time to, to bless the name of the Lord. I think that's a description Elias has. And I think in a few chapters when God says to Elias, Job's better pray for you, brother, or you're going to be in trouble. I think Elias is, is going to re- remember those things. You know, that was my friend Job. Now, are we all capable of being getting out of shape? Well, we're all capable of giving bad advice or... Meaning well and things not coming off maybe like we had hoped they would. And I think that's a lot of what's going on with his friends. I think that's a lot of what's happening with them. What he says, you will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vow. Now again, there's this, there's this emphasis by Elijah has on the stuff Job will do. You, you, you pay your vows. Now the Bible does say that we are to pay our vows and we're to pay them quick. And if you don't make a vow to God, if you're not going to pay your vows, right? But when, whenever the emphasis is on our action, the result of the emphasis being on our action is going to be failure. Nobody pays all their vow. One time or another, we have all broke a vow we made to God. Something that we were going to do or something that... It's not by our vow that we're made righteous. Recognizing that breaking that vow or doing those things, breaking God's law, hurts God's heart, but it doesn't make me in a better place with God or a worse place with God. My place with God is set on my relationship with Him. If I have a close relationship with Him and I break my vow, I'm going to take that to the Lord. God, forgive me. What does He say? First John 1 9. What happens if I ask for forgiveness? He forgives me, right? And cleanses me of how much unrighteousness? All my unrighteousness. So, so we take it. That's relational, right? You guys get what I'm saying? And the other is, is like self-righteous. Can, can lead to self-righteous works. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He says, <clears throat> you will declare a thing and it will be established for you. Now he's getting back into prosperity doctrine. Look, if I say something's going to happen, I want to be positive. I want to have faith that God's going to do things. But it's not based on me. Is it? When Jesus went around healing people, sometimes it was their faith, and sometimes it was His faith, and sometimes it was the faith of a disciple, or sometimes it was the faith of a father and not even the child who was sick. Right? 
Why does God do it in all kinds of different ways? Just so we won't put it in a box and try to sell it. Here's how you receive healing. This is how God's blessing comes. It's not just by me having positive words and positive confession. And positive confession means I'm going to be established. Go back to where you were, Eli has, when you said, all my gold is him. And just stay there. Just park in that place. That God is my everything. I'm established in him. If I get established anywhere else, great. I don't? Great. But God's my everything. Everything I want to be. He says, so it will be established for you, so light will shine on your ways. And he's talking about divine guidance. Isn't that exactly what, what God's word declares? Again, in Psalm 119, your word will be a light into my path, right? The, the children of Israel were to wear the word of God like frontlets on their eyes, like headlights. That's the picture. So if they wore the Word of God on their, on their frontlets over their eyes, it was like, these are my headlights so that I see where to go. The Word of God helps to guide me. It'll be my light as I walk. And when, in verse 29, is a challenging verse in the Hebrew. So most people aren't super sure what he's saying, but it says, when, you, when they cast you down and say, exaltation will come, then He will save the humble. And the point that we want to pull out of it is God exalts the humble, right? He, he brings the proud down and the humble up. So where do we want to be? Humble, right? We want to be humble. For We have nothing that God hasn't given us. We have nothing that, that He doesn't give us. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Well, you're right about that. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. And that's not right. The innocent person is not delivered by your purity. Or the uninnocent person is not delivered by your purity. They're delivered by the purity of God, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not by me or by my works or anybody else's. That's why there was a sacrificial system that the Bible tells us Job was a part of every day, right? To give sacrifice for our failure, covering of God for the places and areas in which we fall short. So Elias comes to the end. The funny thing is, when you look at that last phrase of verse 30, it's really going to come true. In chapter 42, just different than Elias thought. In chapter 42, God's going to ask Job to pray for Eliahaz, and Job's going to pray for him, and God's going to save him, spare him. So he's going to be saved by the purity of Job's hands, which he thinks are all defiled. That's irony. So in chapter 23, Job answers. So Job says, Even today my complaint is bitter. The Hebrew word is mar. It's the same word that Naomi uses in the book of Ruth. Remember when they came and they called her Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. For the, for the, for the house, what, what names? Yeah, I know that's what she meant, but that's not the word she used. But the Lord has dwelt or, or dealt bitterly with me. Like God is, has been against me. He says, even today my complaint is bitter, but he's saying, I got bitterness in me. He's not saying God is somehow wrong. He's saying, I have bitterness in me. I have, I don't understand what's going on. I'm struggling with what's happening in my life. He says, my hand or his hand is listless because of my groaning. I'm groaning and complaining and, 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 and I wish I could stop. I have this bitterness, this thing churning inside of me that continues. To go forward. And he says in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I could find him. <clears throat> that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Now here's what Job's saying. He's not saying, I'm going to go straighten out God. He's saying, I wish I knew where God was so I could come before his judgment seat. And I could make my case and ask him, why? Why is this happening? A lot of people have that question, don't they? I just want to know where God is. 
You ever had that question? Where are you, God? Where are you in this time of suffering? Or in that person's suffering? Or in that suffering on the other side of the world? Where are you in the suffering? That's what Job is declaring. He's not charging God with wrong. He's saying, I I wish I could find Him and I could ask Him. He said, I would know the words which He would answer me. He's saying, I want to know what He says. I I don't want to understand. I don't want my understanding of the circumstance. I want to know what God says. I want to know what He sees and what He knows about what's going on around me. I would know His words and understand what He would say. Uh, His focus is on what the Lord would tell him. He don't understand it, but He knows where the answer is. If I could just find God, if I could just stand before Him, and all the while He's saying that, God is watching him like a proud father. And the devil is sweating. Because Job's supposed to curse God. But over and over and over again, what Job says is, man, I I just want to be with God. I just want to see Him. I just want to talk with Him. I need Him. I need to be around Him. I need Him near me. He says, would He contend with me in His great power? No, but He would take note of me. It's like, He's like, would God, because He's so big, not care about me? That's what Elijah has said in the beginning, right? I mean, do you really matter that much to God? But Job says, I matter to God. He would notice me. He's not saying that because there's something special about Him. He understands the heart of God. God is, one of the attributes of God is omnibenevolence. 1 John chapter 4 tells us God is love. Now that fits with all His other attributes. It's not greater than or less than. But if God is all love, then when we come to John 3.16, we don't have a hard time understanding that God so loved every human being on earth that would be or had ever been born, so much did He love them that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? So Job is saying, man, I, I, God, God cares about me. He cares. If, if, if I could come before Him, He would take note. He would, he, would, he, would, he would speak with me. He's going to speak with Him in a few chapters. And, and there the upright could reason with Him. And I would be delivered forever from my judge. He's still saying His deliverance will come from the hands of God. In this case, Job is still saying all my suffering has come from God. And my deliverance will be through him. So he's looking to God for it all. He's looking to God for for the deliverance from what is going on. So he says, look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, I can't perceive him. And when he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. And when he turns to the right hand, I can't see him. Don't you hear Job's passion about, if I could only find God. If I could only see Him, if I could only hold if I could only be in His presence, like it used to be, I would pray and God would talk to me, but He's silent now. And I don't know why. But listen, look at verse 10. But He knows the way I take. Job says, I don't know where God is, but God knows where I am. And that's something we got to remember. Because a lot of times we may find ourselves in suffering like Job and we're calling out, where are you God in all this? And Job wants us to know, I don't know where God is, but He knows where I am. He knows where I'm at. I, I can't see Him, but He sees me. He hasn't left me. And listen to this. This is right on the jaw of Satan. And when He has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Crack. There went a couple of teeth. That, that's, the spiritual battle is almost over, man. Job is like, it, it's as bad as it's going to get. And Job, in the midst of all his suffering, says, I know I'm being tested. And when it's over, I'm going to be like gold. What does that mean to say? I'm not folding. I'm not quitting. I'm not cursing. I'm not turning my back on God. I'm hanging on to God for all that I'm worth because God is the thing that's going to carry me through. I'm just clinging to Him. Now, Satan don't know it for sure yet for about, what, uh, 18 chapters. But that's over. It's done. 
Job ain't gonna fold. I am being tested. And I will finish like gold. He's going to keep his eyes on the Lord. Listen to this. Listen to this. Awesome. My foot has held fast to his steps. I'm, I'm just going to walk where I see God walking. I have kept his way and not turned aside. Job never denied his relationship with God, no matter what. One of the beautiful things in Scripture, we see God over and over again saying, I am not ashamed to be known as your God. Why are you ashamed to be known as, as my people? I ought to think about that. He said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Yaakov. I'm not afraid to be known by your name. Are you willing to be known by my as my people? Job says, "Man, I'm yours. I walk where he's not charging God with wrong. He's saying, "I'm going where you want me to go. I'm going to be who you want me to be. I'm going to do what you want me to do. I will keep your way, and I'm not going to turn aside. Oh man, this is a bad day for the devil." I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, and I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Wow. In the Hebrew, in this in the poetry here in chapter in verse twelve, when he says his lips and his mouth, the 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 concept of Job's obedience is personal faithfulness to a living God not personal faithfulness to a set of rules if he said uh, I, I, if he had just said that I'm, uh, I haven't departed from his commandment and I have treasured his words but he said his lips and his mouth which means it's not about the external commands it's about the internal relationship I have a relationship with God it's the words of his lips it's the commandments from his lips and the words of his mouth. He's, he's emphasizing the personal relationship. Not just this idea of some external rules. He's saying, I have a personal relationship with God Almighty, with the living God. And he's given notice to the devil. He don't even know it. He has no idea he's in spiritual battle. But the devil just is up against the ropes right now. And God is starting to get a big grin on his face. My champion's going to take you out, Satan. He don't even know what's going on, Satan, and he is going to take you out because I love him and he loves me and he knows it. No matter what, he knows it. He goes and he looks toward the Lord in verse 13 and he says, but he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. He's saying, look, God has his plan. And it's perfect. His plan is good. For he performs what is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. God knows what he's doing. He has a, a plan for my life. I don't get it and I don't understand it, but I love Him and I trust Him, so I'm holding on to Him. It's Him and me till the wheels fall off and they might be falling off pretty soon. But Job says, I'm going to my grave praising God. I'm going to my grave holding on to Him. But then in verse 15 and 16, he starts to talk about his discouragement. Uh, discouragement comes for Job. Discouragement comes for you and me too, right? Therefore, I am terrified of his presence. I mean, I know God's doing a plan, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what that plan means. When I consider this, what's going on in my life, I am afraid of him. I'm afraid of God. For God made my heart weak. 
what he's emphasizing is this weakness, even this discouragement that I'm feeling right now is from the hands of God. God has ordained this discouragement for me. There's something, some measure of growth, development of character, clinging to hope that God is working in my life. And so he's saying it's God that's brought this weakness in my heart, even this weakness. And I'm afraid... I'm afraid of, of what's going to happen. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. The Almighty terrifies me. Because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness. And He did not hide deep darkness from my face. He says, I, I am... I know He's not done yet. God's not done yet. But I'm still holding on to the Lord. I'm still clinging to God. I'm still, my hope is in Him. He's going to carry me through. He says, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know Him not see His days? What he's saying is, now, all these things I just explained to you about my relationship with God, how is it that my godly friends can't see this? How is it that you guys who walk with God and have relationships with God as well, how can you not recognize the things that are going on. And so he's going to describe, we heard Eliahaz describe the wicked. Job's going to describe the wicked. Look at it. Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. And they take the widow's ox as a pledge. He says, the wicked are not always punished. They get away with their stuff sometimes. They get away with stealing property. They get away with abusing the poor. And then when he starts to talk about abusing the poor, he's going to talk about all kind of aspects of it. One of the aspects he's going to talk about is, is that the, these wicked men are going to do their jobs without regard for how it affects others. Is that all that different from our world? You know, them $150 tennis shoes that a kid made, uh, in some third world country making three cents a day or whatever. So wicked don't care. As long as it gets the profit margin in, who cares? That's the exact same thing that he's talking about. He says they push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They, they get their own food, but they don't care about what's happening to the poor. They gather their fodder in the field and they, and they glean in the vineyard of the wicked. Then he says, these guys, these wicked guys who are taking advantage of the poor, they won't even give the poor protection from the elements. They'll just say, suck it up. Verse 7, they spend the night naked without clothes. They have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. The wicked don't care. As long as it meets the profit margin, what's the big deal? Then they won't give them the things that are necessary for life. They'll use the poor and abuse the poor, but they won't take care of the poor. They won't help the poor. They won't give them the things that they need, though they could. Though they could. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread the wine presses, yet they suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. Job says, even though the wicked do all these things and they take advantage of the poor and they're not helping them out, God doesn't judge them. God doesn't judge them. Asaph had the same questions when he looked at the prosperity of the wicked. And Peter tells us why. Peter says, God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward them, desiring that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So God waits. And because God waits, wicked men like me get a chance. 
Because God waits, wicked men like you get a chance. So God waits. Job says the destruction doesn't always come for the wicked. It doesn't always come for them. He says in verse 13, he describes the rebellious. Though There are those who rebel against the light. That's rebelling against God. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. Then he talks about the murderer. The murderer rises with the light. And he kills the poor and needy. He talks about the thief. And in the night, he is like a thief. Then he moves to the adulterer. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will ever see me as he disguises his face. And then he speaks of the violent. In the dark they break into houses, which they mark for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. And then in verse 18 he says, But God's consequences come in God's time. Not ours. Yeah, there are wicked people and they abuse the poor and, they, and they're rebellious and they're murderers and they're thieves and they're adulterers and they're violent. And God waits for them to repent. They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow water, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him, and the worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more, and the wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who do not bear, and uh, does no good for the widow. He says all these things should happen. But God draws... The mighty away with his power. He rises up. But no man is sure of life. He gives them security. And they rely on it. If we really understood the horrors of hell, our attitude toward the wicked would be like God's. We say things, I used to say things like this when I was in the Marine Corps all the time, you know. The president just needs to send us over, we'll straighten it up. Let God sort it out, right? Kill them all. Let God sort it out. If we really knew what hell was like, that wouldn't be our attitude. The greatest, I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said the, the greatest need for every evangelist is to be dangled over the mouth mouth of hell for five minutes and then turn them loose on the street. If we really understood what it means to be in the absence of God, totally change our attitude. Job is saying, man, I think the, the wicked should get judged and they should pay for all the stuff they've done and all this stuff should happen. But that's in God's hands. He decides. God draws the mighty away with His power. He rises up. No man is sure of life. Anywhere in the Bible does it guarantee you tomorrow? No guarantees. That's so we, that's so we live. That's so we live. But you don't leave something unsaid that you could have said. Something undone that you could have done. But that we do those things. He gives them security and they rely on it. Yet his eyes are on their ways. He says God sees them. They mistake God's mercy for lack of power. We say things like, oh, I did that. I, you know, I... I did this little sin and I waited. There's no lightning bolt. So I kept going. Well, just because there's no lightning bolt doesn't mean God's not watching. But they think their every breath, every day depends on a God who hates sin. 
Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the only thing keeping them out of hell. That's mind-blowing when you consider it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. A God who hates sin. But He is what is holding them out. Giving them time. Opportunity. He says in verse 24, They are exalted for a little while, and then they're gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Judgment one day. Everybody stands before it. God gives us all the life He gives us full of opportunities. And we're responsible for taking advantage of those opportunities. Receiving the gift that He offers us every day. Job understood. It's not, I'm not the wicked guys. The wicked are those guys who don't know the Lord. I know the Lord. I'm going to die in this pile of ash and I'm going to go see Him. And He'll redeem me. I know He will. But He says the wicked, they don't. And one day they're going to stand before Him. And then in verse 25, <laughs> He's got to get Bildad fired up. Otherwise nobody would talk after Job. So He says, now if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? Okay, who's next? Job says, I almost rest my case, but I'm sure somebody else has something to say. He's right. Bill Dad does. He's not going to talk for long, though. The concept that Job lays out for us is that this understanding is so prophetic. Because he's saying everything that Job is saying about what makes his life right hinges on the reality that he has a relationship with God. Now, Job's relationship with God was predicated on him being a man of faith. Now, us being a man of faith means we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But there was no Jesus Christ at Job's time. So how was it that he walked by faith? Every single morning, he went out and took of his flock and brought an offering to God. And he said, God, this offering means I know I'm not okay. I'm a sinner. But you said, by the shedding of blood, there's remission of sin. So he made offering every day for his kids. Walked with God. He loved the Lord. The Bible says the justified will walk by faith. Right? And that's how he walked by faith, man. He's walking by faith. He's walking by faith in a relationship with God. On what God had revealed of himself at the time of Job. And so he could say over and over again, I'm not the wicked. I'm righteous. I'm not righteous because I'm righteous. I'm righteous because he is. He makes me righteous. And so Job was empowered by the grace God gave him to defeat Satan himself. You and I, in our spiritual battles, we're probably not ever going to rate fighting against Satan himself. We get somebody else. I'm not saying it won't be bad. But we probably are not going to get Satan. Job got Satan. He got the man. The biggest guy Satan had to throw was himself. So he brought himself to the fight. But Job defeated him. The same way you do. By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of his testimony. And he didn't love his life more than he loved God. He didn't love his life to the death. And he knocked him out. Same keys for us. In the spiritual battles that we face, same keys. Same thing. It all hinges first and foremost on knowing what Job knew. 
I have a relationship with God. Me and him are tight. I know he loves me. And he knows I love him. And that was absolutely true, wasn't it? Absolutely true. Chapter 1, God said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody else like him. And that's still key for us. Amen?